three, two. Welcome to the last episode of Who's Saving the Planet for the year 2020. Oh, it's been a it's been a wild ride, 2020. Ugh, wild ride doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. <laughs> wild ride, but we uh, I gotta say, what for, even though we suffered through a series of calamities hopped on top of one another. There's so much that I personally am grateful for, for this year. And I feel like there's so much that we've learned and so much that we can bring into the next year as a little bit stronger, a little bit more uh, empathetic people have a little bit better perspective about what matters Then I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for 2021. And I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I, without, without playing down the horribleness of much of what 2020 was, I'm kind of grateful that we had that to experience so that we can really push forward into greener pastures and a brighter future going forward. Yeah. Let's put the calamities like pandemics and murder hornets. And Absolutely. And so listen to everyone who's been listening along with us this year. Thank you. We are, we are grateful for you and stay tuned we have a ton of really fascinating stories coming your way in 2021 and a crazy presidential election let's put that aside momentarily and end the year on on a nice note yes. and start the new year on a pleasant note so we're going to take you back to one of our favorite we love all of the episodes are our children but uh this one was a whole heck of a lot of fun where we got a chance to talk with two crazy cats from south africa about a fire farting beetle that they made to save the planet and that is not an exaggeration it literally is a giant mechanical farting beetle that you feed plastic and it could essentially power a grid well that's the goal right there's six billion tons of plastic in the environment already. I mean, that's how much plastic is literally discarded all over the planet. And while we might have widely available biodegradable plastics in future, it's very unlikely that those will be suitable for everything that we use plastic for. Everyone has started to realize the problem, but the question really still remains, what on earth do we do with this ever-growing mountain of plastic? All right, let's go into it. Let's give it a shot. Okay. Okay. Remember Donald Trump did that? He like unbuttoned his suit. Yeah. Leaned back. His, his, <laughs> his disaster. His office address. <laughs> the most serious thing a president can do. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet? I'm your host, Tony Noto, with my loyal partner, producer in command, Lex Kiefhaber. How's hey, it going, Tony. Lex? It's going fantastic. How was your uh, How was your Memorial Day weekend? It's weird to have a holiday weekend now because every day feels like a continuation of the last one. But did you do anything special? I did. I I barbecued lamb for the first time. Wow! How'd it go? It was very, very good. It was very tasty. Yeah, I'm not a vegan, so I'm a big meat eater. So <laughs> Memorial Day weekend is tradition. We gotta cook the meat. Absolutely. I barbecued a rack of uh, pork ribs, so I am also Ooh. not a vegan, but try to buy these meats as sustainably and res responsibly sourced as possible. Of course. Yeah. And using less plastic, I hope. 
Yeah, we've, we've cut down, well, for some personal stuff, we've cut down on our diet quite a bit for any kind of meat products or for dairy um, to try to make sure that we are being a little bit more conscious about the things that we're eating. And it's actually not that hard if you just take one or two things to cut out of your diet. It makes a big impact. So it's not, you don't need to feel the pressure of going 100% one way or the other. Just make uh, every day one or two more thoughtful choices. And speaking of thoughtful choices, our guest today uh, made a bunch of thoughtful choices because they're from Africa. And uh, well, they're based there. And their big choice was creating technology to solve two problems. One, the amount of plastic that has been piling up across the planet in South Africa in, in, uh, in particular, and the energy poverty problem that's there. They're trying to solve these two problems. It's Jeffrey Barbie and Simon Davis, two awesome guests that I can't wait to chat with. Yeah, and they have a giant scarab beetle to illustrate the way that they're solving this problem, which takes empty plastic containers, so the stuff that we see washing up on beaches and shores around the world, and uses that as fuel to create electricity and more liquid fuel that can be used and burned in a much cleaner way. So it's a, a fascinating double solution to huge problems we have. And so we dig into what they're doing and the work they're doing and also what challenges lie ahead of them. So if this is so perfect, why doesn't it exist already? And how can you make it so that it's in every home, like a microwave? Every home should have a tiny little technological beetle that crushes the plastic and turns it into electricity. Yeah, you just feed the beetle and power your home. <laughs> Imagine right next to your microwave or your toaster, just, just a, a, a beetle that farts fire. Safely, 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 farting, safely. Farting, very, <laughs> we got a preface. Very controlled. Uh, but these guys are really, they're dedicated, they're passionate, they're very interesting. And we had a heck of a good time talking to them. Yeah, they remind me sort of like the Power Rangers. Like, remember how the Power Rangers used to have like these giant uh, robotic animals that they used to summon? Yeah, of course. And the then swords. they all came into one giant one, right? Not yeah, like the Megazord, Megatron, like Megatron. Yeah. Not Megatron, that's from uh, Transformers. Um, Megazord, I think. Oh man, my inner 90s kid is like kicking me. But yeah, these guys created a giant beetle. Uh, it farts fire and we had a good time talking with them. Should we kick it off? Simon Davis, Jeffrey Barbie. How are you, gentlemen? Very good. Great. Greetings from Great. the southern tip of Africa. This is our first time that we are traveling to the African continent. So we're really glad to have you guys on. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much right, for having me here. We really yeah. appreciate it. Are you guys in New York? I'm still in Brooklyn. Tony's in uh, Utah. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, we're not allowed to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're still locked down. We're hoping it kind of gets uh, a little bit easier. We're expecting it to sort of wind down a little bit um, on the 1st of June, hopefully. Awesome. New York's officially locked down through June 13th. Yeah, so they right, say. yeah that's about the same as us, yeah. Yeah, but you guys don't even have booze. We have uh, explosion no. of alcohol sales. <laughs> you guys don't have no booze? booze? What do you mean no, you don't we, have booze? No, no booze, no cigarettes. What are you talking Not about? Why? Sale. Well, the idea with the booze was that, it, you know, basically people get hypersocial and they want to see their mates and then they do stupid shit. That bit I get, kind of. Ah. I mean, no booze sales at all and no cigarette sales. So the smokers have all gone completely doolowy. I mean... Out of this, of 11 million people, like instantly, you know, <laughs> the people going through nicotine withdrawal are totally reasonable people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, how do you, how do, how it's do folks stay calm? Idea. 
no, they're going insane. Uh, you've got 11 million people going insane, basically. <laughs> Perfect. And we've got the, the suddenly the biggest bootlegging market that you've ever seen. I mean, there's just, you know, illegal cigarettes pouring in from Zimbabwe where, you know, there's huge tobacco farms in Zimbabwe. So now there's just, there's a flood of illegal bootleggers and cigarette salesmen everywhere. So, I mean, it's a completely losing proposition. I mean, <laughs> no yeah, sense. I actually have, I have some prohibition gin here. I had to make sure that it wasn't going to make me blind first. <laughs> <laughs> you got to watch out those tails and fence. That's a real problem. <laughs> and it's officially the roaring twenties. It is. It is. It is. The, uh, one of our friends opened a speakeasy yesterday so that he could secretly have his mates over because he has a bar. They just shut everything down, you know, it, all the bars, awesome. everything. I mean, he has, he has, he has inventory. But, yeah. but he, you know, anyway, so, um, yeah, sorry, guys. We, we were actually in another call because we were mis mixed up with the invite. So sorry about that. No problem. Of course. Let's, let's kick it off by, um, giving us a, just a really quick overview of what it is that you guys do. And then let's talk about why this idea was something that gestated in terms of what the problem that you identified and how big a problem that is. How, what is the scope and the scale of it? I mean, if we look at the problems that we're interested in, I mean, we're interested in the global plastic waste problem. Uh, that's the one primary problem we're looking at. And the other one is energy poverty. You know, there's still large sections of the planet where there really isn't access to energy at all, let alone clean energy. Certainly in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia alone, there's over 1 billion people who have no access to electricity at all, no grid power. And this leads to all sorts of really damaging environmental consequences. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it's deforestation. Beautiful natural forests are being cut down to make charcoal which obviously drives up greenhouse gases, making charcoal is incredibly dirty, uh, but it also destroys the forests, which are these enormous carbon sinks. Additionally, there are, you know, these areas which are off grid um, are importing diesel for electricity generation. And if you're trucking diesel vast distances across the African continent, or you are transporting it by barge over the reefs to the 25,000 islands in the sort of Malay archipelago, that leads to a very, very high transport cost. And again, higher CO2 emissions just to, just, to, just to even get the fuel to the point that you want to use it. So those are the two things that, uh, that we're particularly interested in, um, especially being down here in sub-Saharan Africa, the energy, energy poverty is a big problem. But if we take the plastic problem first, there's 6 billion tons of plastic in the environment already. I mean, that's how much plastic is literally discarded all over the planet. We're making 400 million tons of plastic every year, and every year plas virgin plastic production is, is growing. And 80% of plastic waste is thrown away. And I think although that everyone has started to realize the problem, and there's lots of work being done on trying to cut plastic use as far as possible, especially single-use plastics, there's a whole move to cut single-use plastics, eliminating plastic completely is probably impossible. It's a crucial element in all modern products and in all supply chains. And while we might have widely available biodegradable plastics in future, it's very unlikely that those will be suitable for everything that we use plastic for. Then if you look at recycling, recycling is also not a solution because 75% of plastic that is manufactured isn't actually recyclable. So you're still stuck with the plastic. And then to make matters worse, uh, in 2018, China stopped importing 
waste plastic. And now you see landfills all over the world starting to fill up with completely, uh, with a product that doesn't biodegrade. Yeah. So the good news is at least the problem is now becoming visible to everyone before it was just being shipped offshore as someone else's problem. But now <laughs> it's becoming visible. But the question really still remains, what on earth do we do with this ever-growing mountain of plastic? What do you say to the folks that insist on just bringing fossil fuels to these areas? And when I say folks, I mean guys like Rick Perry, who insist the fossil fuels are the solution to this sort of problem in, in, in lighting the grid in these impoverished nations and communities. Well, I would say that the most important thing is when you look at the energy secretary, you realize that these are vested interests in, and these are fossil ideas. These are ideas that are born of, you know, the 20th century, that we need these fossil fuels to drive growth and development. We know that the fact of the matter is these are not the solutions that we will need in the 21st century. And one of the things that we've looked at is turning this fossil fuel problem, which is discarded waste plastic at 400 million tons a year, and turning it into an energy solution that really drives change and creates an alternative economy that is dependent upon removing plastic from the environment. So these both seem like massive issues. And you're saying that you can solve both of them simultaneously yes, yeah not only that but the actually there's, that is the idea if you think about like if if you wanted to look at the basis of our business model it's based around so it's energy security jobs and plastic waste reduction so that's really the sort of triangle of our business we got to know how how are you going to solve this both tell us where you came up with this idea and what it is and why in the world the scarab beetle is involved yeah, so actually, yeah, the dung beetle is the symbol of rebirth. The dung beetle in ancient Egyptian lore picked up the sun god Ra and pushed him across the sky in the same way that the dung beetle itself pushes a big ball of poop over the ground to either eat or nest in. So these are, this is an analogy that, that is something we wanted to pick up and take along with us because so many people look at plastic waste as something useless that they throw away. And we wanted to change that way of thinking. So what we did was we created a machine with a Burning Man grant about two and a half years ago. And that machine was based on our friend Pops. We call him Pops. Our friend is named Pierre Pretorius. He lives here in South Africa. And he built an amazing machine that turned his waste plastic from his house into electricity that he could tap off for a few hours a day. And when I saw that, I said, well, I don't know, wait, why don't we turn it into um, a system that we could actually generate electricity with waste plastic here in South Africa, where we have a massive waste plastic problem like everywhere. And we could generate electricity using the waste plastic and use it as an environmental messaging system. So we could tell people, about solutions to their environmental problems while we were powering a stage off of waste plastic. And Pierre Pretorius is, is a, one of the big projects that he did was District 9, the Oscar winning movie that was based around here in Johannesburg. So he's a set builder and he said, well, let's build something that will really capture people's imaginations. And we decided that we would settle on a dung beetle because it's really the symbol of rebirth it is an ancient African symbol of fertility and regeneration. And right now, obviously the earth needs a lot of regeneration. 
And, you know, it was pretty obvious when we came up with the idea of a fire farting dung beetle pushing a steel earth as our stage that we would go to Burning Man and ask them for money to see if we could get some funding for it. And in fact, we got a Burning Man grant to build the machine into this big sculpture and take it to the largest Burning Man event outside of Burning Man, which is here in Africa, called Africa Burn. So the dung beetle machine is, is what sits inside of a big steel ball that is shaped like the earth with the continents on it. And that's two meters tall, that's six and a half feet tall. And then the dung beetle itself is about eight feet tall and it's made out of recycled stainless steel welded together to look like a dung beetle, an endangered dung beetle, which is one of the 6,000 species of dung beetle on earth. And this endangered dung beetle is called the galloping beetle because instead of flying, he runs across the desert sands of Namibia to find the things that he needs to put together, which is usually um, poop or feces. You know, they're looking for <laughs> they're looking for shit out there, and they're they're going to find it any way they can. And this particular beetle is is modeled on one that is endangered from Namibia. Jeff, can you tell me what it was like? the first time that you saw this dung beetle belching fire in real life, like just take us to that moment, what that felt like. <laughs> yeah. So when we finally finished the sculpture and took it to the first big event, which was the Africa burn event here in South Africa, we, we fired it up and we were able to produce enough electricity for about four or 5,000 people to, to come to, at the time we were playing music. So we were running the music system off of the, off of the pyrolysis unit. We had fired it up, it'd been very windy in the afternoon and to see the stage set up and we had a DJ there with a, with a big sound system and within probably 20 or 30 minutes, we had a couple thousand people around the whole system, everybody wanted to know what this thing was about. It was shooting, you know, 10 feet of fire out of its bum into the air. The sun had just set. It was this feeling of absolute excitement that not only did it work, but that so many people were taken by the romantic idea that we could do something positive with plastic. Using the beetle to play music, please tell me you played the Beatles. We have an amazing DJ who has been with us from, from the start, who's actually one of the investors into Scarab Tech as well. And he plays really great old vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets up there with his turntables and he's a scruffy guy. His name's Andrew the DJ. He runs one of the most fabulous um, sort of nightclub bars that attracts people from all ages and all races here in Johannesburg. And, and we're lucky to have him as a DJ. And he definitely plays the Beatles from our stage. Excellent. Yeah, Very I would just cool. add that one of the, the things that really was to see this thing really come alive was when we have taken this, this it's a, essentially a traveling art stage. We've taken this traveling art stage into the rural areas of South Africa to pretty impoverished towns. And you watch how the kids interact with the beetle. We do music, but, and we work with local artists, but we also do environmental education. And you see the adults and the community get together and you see the excitement and the, 
the almost like the galvanization of belief and hope that is driven from the stage. And when we see that happen, that was really the moment we realized that this technology could make a real difference in people's lives. It described for me how the technology works because how do you create energy from plastic if incinerating plastic is part of the problem? The process that we use is not burning plastic at all. Um, it's really metamorphosizing plastic into other petrochemical products. Because if you think about it, plastic, like diesel or gasoline, comes from oil. And it's just long hydrocarbon chains um, that we call plastic. So the process is pyrolysis. Um, and it's not a new process. It's actually a, uh, you know, over 100 years old. But the idea is that you heat up, you heat up the plastic. And as you heat it up, you start to break the hydrocarbon chains of the plastic into shorter and shorter hydrocarbon chains, which then evaporate as a gas. And then it goes into a condensing apparatus. And as long as you can evaporate the gas at the right temperatures and condense the gas at the right temperatures, you can distill out lots of different petrochemical products. Um, but it seems to be one of those technologies that rises and falls based on the need. So, I mean, in the First World War, the French were using it to power uh, cars, uh, military cars, because they didn't have access to fuel. So they were building wood gasifiers to, to run their trucks. And it's gone in and out of, of favor as a process. I mean, here in South Africa, interestingly, during the days of apartheid, uh, where there was big embargoes. So we were not allowed to import oil. You know, there was an oil embargo on South Africa. But South Africa's got a lot of coal. So South Africa built an entire industry that took coal and turned coal into uh, diesel and gasoline, um, which is our big petrochemical company here called Sassel. And that uses the same process. It's taking coal and then it's turning it into gasoline and diesel. We're just replacing the coal with, with plastic. You know, when we fired it up and we said, oh, this is a plastic party, it's a powered by plastic party. We got exactly the questions that you asked. They were like, you're burning plastic to, to do the party? And then, but right, it, then right. it opened up a thing about how to explain it. And, and really it was from, from that Africa burn machine that we just started getting so many inquiries. People were like, well, did you make this machine? And how did you make this machine? And can we buy one? Of, can we have one of these machines? And, and, and that was really how the whole, you know, we, we did it really initially as, a, as, as just a demonstration of things that you could do with plastic and that it wasn't a worthless trashy thing all over the place that it actually has enormous potential if you if you just do something clever with it and really that's that that really is how the the commercial company started is just we started getting so many people who were asking can we have one <laughs> so, that's good yeah, though that's the cool. best way it's very hank pym like if you got yeah. it sounds like marvel comics technology it does a bit i mean we're always I, i'm i i mean i think both of us are sort of constantly surprised people think that it's that it's, uh, that it's, you know, completely new technology. And the interesting thing is that it isn't. Um, it's just, I don't think, it's, it hasn't been done on this sort of scale before. You know, we are trying to do it on a much smaller, a much smaller scale. Um, but uh, again, it's, yeah, I think it's one of these technologies that, that r rises and falls depending on the need. It was needed in apartheid South Africa, but it's also, and it was needed in World War I France. And now we hit this point where we've got this glut of plastic all over the place um, and we're still shipping in diesel, even though the plastic itself has got double the energy density of coal and we're busy shipping in diesel products. You know, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Lex, are you there? 
Yep, I'm here. So oh, I think okay. I thought you froze for a second. No, I'm just remarkably zen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Exactly. Wusa. Uh, okay. Um, let's take this into that that you alluded to. This technology is available, and you have a market that needs to be able to use this machine, this technology. Why is this not a ubiquitous product already? Yeah, why can't we um, just give you all the money? Right. Um, I, I think there are a couple. Of, I mean, the machines that we built originally, which were you know hand built and made from scrap, really, you know, boilers and bits of old pieces. Um, so the initial machines that we've made, and we've now made, oof, I think we're on the sort of tenth iteration of these machines. But when we're building them for an art project, with with the people running them, with the engineers that built them, it's taking this technology that we've managed to build, but then actually turning it into a commercial product that instead of needing an engineer to run, you can have a diesel mechanic that can run it. And then hopefully a little bit further along, you don't actually need a diesel mechanic. You just need someone that can, you know, if you can fill up your car, you can run it, you know? So it's, it's that iteration of, because this, this technology, I mean, at the end of the day, you are heating up uh, vats of plastic and creating volatile petrochemical products. So it's, it's safe if you do it properly, but the trick really is to make these machines simpler and cheaper and safer uh, to operate. The real uptake and the possibility of making them cheaper, like Simon is explaining, is, has only become available to us in the last 10 years. Because what you need are, you know, the ability to highly, to cheaply engineer 3D designs, like, you know, reduction printing or, or 3D printing like we use for some of our machines, but you also need the ability to integrate um, software so that you can manage these systems. So a lot of the things that the technology that goes into people's cell phones or made it possible for us to finally make drones that you could afford and fly as, as a general person, it's the same sort of technology that needed to come of age so that these machines could be made safely and cheaply and turned into something that could be unleashed upon the plastic problem. Your primary market here is also your most impoverished segment of the world. So where do you get to the point where it's cheap enough that somebody who's subsiding on something which is essentially free, which could be wood, can afford this? The target that we're aiming at is the diesel, it's the diesel generator market. And that's the primary goal. So if you look at the diesel generator market, there are a million diesel generators sold every year um, with an average cost of about $22,000. So it's, it's a $22 billion market um, that are just doing oh, diesel generators. Yeah. Um, and diesel generators are, yeah, they're, they're used on islands and they're used in places with no grid electricity and they're used in places that are you know, too remote to have it. But the idea is that not only must it compete with a diesel generator, it's got to be better and cheaper than a diesel generator. So it's not only cleaning up the plastic, it's providing you the same amount of energy that a diesel generator would, but it's doing it at a lower cost at the same time. So that is the, that's our initial goal for these machines. And we think that there's certainly a market. Our target is to deploy 5,000 of these units within, within the first three to five years. But if we manage to do just 5,000 units that are processing 600 kilos of plastic a day, which is quite a lot of plastic, you know, if you pile it up in a room, but it's, it's, it's very small in comparison, you know, it, it's very small. It, it's, it's a small town or a small village's uh, amount of plastic. 
But if you've got 600 kilos a day times 5,000 uh, units, you're processing a million tons of plastic, waste plastic into energy every year. And that starts to make a very, very big difference. I think you bring up a really good point, which is that's a room full of plastic. So it's, if I have a diesel generator right now, it's easy for me to go buy five gallons of diesel and that will last me a long time. It's a lot harder to go pick up, I don't know, a shipping containers worth of empty plastic even if it's the same price as the generator. That sounds like so much more work. Yeah, in some ways, you're absolutely right. Um, but for example, if you take, take an island like Vanuatu, the Vanuatu archipelago, archipelago the, uh, not only are they importing all of their diesel fuel onto the island, they're also importing all their plastic. They don't have a plastic factory on any of these. So all of their plastic bottles, all of their stuff that comes in with plastic is everything's wrapped in plastic because everything's imported on these islands. And if you look at those islands, the tallest point on the island is the, is the trash tip of the plastic on the island. So if you're taking those types of remote island economies, we call them island economy, they're not always islands, but if you take an island as an example, in those cases, the plastic is already there and it's, there is tons of it. And they have to either burn it or pile it up or ship it out. And in those cases, and they're shipping in diesel to run, their, to run their electricity at the same time. So there are plenty of initial target opportunities where these types of plastic generator versus a diesel generator make, make complete sense. Yeah. In Colorado, we have a very similar market because all of the recycling, the plastic recycling from Colorado was going to China, which stopped taking it in 2018. And now we have our landfills in the western part of the state filling up with plastic, while at the same time, we also have a shortage of electrical power in the state. And we actually are 20% wow. under our current buyback. So by developing a plastic to energy system for a place like rural Western Colorado, which because of its isolation, acts like what we call an island economy for plastic, you can actually turn around and sell power back to a community power cooperative at a rate that is competitive with the buy that they're pulling in from the Hoover Dam or, or the purchase that they're making from a wind farm in Nebraska. So when we look at this, this is not just translatable to places like Vanuatu, where it makes a lot of economic sense. It's translatable to our rural communities in America, where it also makes a lot of economic sense. Put it in terms of like, two liters of Coke. How many empty two liters of Coke do I need to power a family of four's home? Keep in mind that we are looking at community-based large-scale systems. We're looking at the generator market where they sell a million generators a year at an average cost of $22,000. So these are big generators. These are community-based sizes that can generate enough power to run, um, say, a hundred houses in Africa and maybe 50 houses in America, because our houses in America use a lot more energy. I'm going to say it in pounds. Sorry, guys. I, I think in kilos now. Um, you can say it in kilos. <laughs> we can do the math. Okay. Okay. But uh, let's say uh, 100 pounds of plastic into about 10 hours of electricity for your average American home times two. 100 pounds of empty plastic bottles by volume would be... I would imagine massive. Well, the, keep oh, no. in mind this is shredded Shred plastic. Shredded. 
25% of the plastic stream is recyclable. So you're going to recycle 25% of the plastic from an average American household. 75% of that plastic would have gone to the landfill, but instead we're going to turn that plastic into electricity. So what's the goal? What's the ultimate dream is to have like a giant plastic to energy beetle, maybe in every town. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I let's, can let's, honestly... let's go to Brooklyn right. and just like yeah. create a right. giant beetle so... in Coney Island to power Brooklyn. It's phased. So right now, where the where we've got the technology now, you know, these machines, we're going to have our first commercial machines ready by about Q4 this year. And those machines, you know, as Lex is uh, saying, those machines are not necessarily suitable for all environments. But we think that there are several thousand, tens of thousands of environments where they do work perfectly. But really, the idea is, once you've got these machines running, the idea is to make them smaller and cheaper and safer and easier to run. And those are the things that you just, those are the measurables that you have to just keep hitting. And once you can make them safer and easier and cheaper, then suddenly they become viable to put in, for example, take a, a shopping mall. Shopping malls have got tons of plastic every day right. that goes straight into their garbage um, thing. But the problem with right now, if we took one of our machines to a shopping mall, there are all sorts of questions about, Oh, well, you know, it's, it's frequented by a lot of public places and, oh, do you have the right, you know, is it, is it, is this machine safe enough to put so close to, you know, so many people and, you know, how easy is it to run? And, you know, so we've already spoken to shopping malls and it's not just shopping malls, it's commercial parks and industrial parks, you know, all these places have got tons and tons of plastic that are coming into every commercial park and every industrial park and every shopping mall all the time. So those are all ideal locations for this technology, but not quite yet. But that is definitely the goal, is that you're trying to get to these, so that eventually these machines become, are so standardized and easy to operate um, that you can safely put them in more and more places. And eventually, I mean, look, eventually, ultimately, wouldn't it be great if you could have a machine that was small enough, you know, a bit like your dishwasher and you could deal with household waste and it would just refill your propane tank outside, you know, with your plastic, Exactly. you know, things like that. So that's where we, that's kind of, you know, where we'd love to get to, but right now that isn't where we are, but even where we are, we think there are plenty of applications around the world where, where it's perfectly feasible. Yeah. We've adapted this technology to be smaller, affordable and transportable. And that means that we can tap into the current market for diesel generators around the world. There are a million diesel generators sold every year with an average cost of $22,000. These are big generators. It's a $22 billion market globally. By providing similar electrical solutions that instead use waste plastic, we aim to capture a fraction of this market in five years with 5,000 units deployed across the planet turning 1 million tons of waste plastic into energy. If we could put out 40,000 of these machines, we would remove 7.5 million tons of plastic from the environment every year. And that's roughly the same amount that's entering the oceans globally every year. And yet that's only 4% of the current diesel generator market. 4.2 million tons of plastic hit the ocean every year. Yeah, yeah, it's, about uh, eight, it's like no, there's more plastic than fish. Yeah, it's like 8 million tons goes into the ocean every year. Yeah, sorry, 8 so, million tons into the ocean. Yeah, it, it, that, that, that's, you know, that's just into the ocean. That's not, yeah. that's not, the, uh, <laughs> that's not everywhere else. But I'm tasting you know, it now. What we're trying to say is that, yeah, if we can scale these machines, you know, 5,000 we think is totally doable. 
um, if we're looking further out than five years and we can get these mass produced, then 40,000, yeah, now you're suddenly talking about dealing with all the ocean plastic every year. Let's say I neglect to mention that I am actually a, a billionaire. How much money would you need to get this to scale where it would have a measurable impact on our current planet's situation when it comes to plastic in the next five years? Um, we're aiming once we've got this latest, this latest machine, which is really the beta commercial prototype um, ready. So that should be ready this year. It's at that point that we need, you need money to start scaling up manufacturing on a much, on a much larger, a much larger scale. Um, but that round, you're still, you know, you're still looking that round, you're looking at sort of $5 million. But ultimately, once, once you've got a, a design that that works, this is not really, we don't see it as VC, necessarily VC funded, it can be debt funded, because you've got a product that works, and you just need capital to make it in like just mass produce them. In terms of how much the machines cost, currently these machines cost, the first one, we, the, the first big prototype we did last year was about $60,000 to build. The current machine we think will come in at $30,000, but ultimately we want these machines to be sort of sub 10, and then they're, then they're, then they're half the price of a diesel generator. Yeah, well, I would, I would also add that if we're gonna look in five years, we would like to be a billion dollar company in five years time. Mm. And that's ambitious, but you know, obviously the COVID-19 virus has slowed things down globally. But at the same yes. time, it's given an impetus for all of us to rethink the world we most wanna live in. And what I think is most exciting is that some of our early angel investors were some of the people who believed that we could share automobiles instead of, instead of all owning our, our own. And some of these folks, they came from the folks who started Uber. And what's exciting is that even in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, we've still gotten lots of interest from angel investors who want to be a part of a new economy that changes the world for the better. And one of the things that we've looked at with this, this project as we sort of keep projecting out, you know, all of new startups are like, where do you want to be in five years? And where do you, where do you see yourself going? What's exciting is that during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've actually had interest from people that we didn't even look for. Because when we, when we sort of sat back at the beginning of this year, we, we said, okay, well, you know, in five years time, we want to be a $50 million company or a $100 million company we've looked at. And now we're thinking that, that we can expand that horizon out. And it would be great in five to seven years to have a billion dollar company with tens of thousands of these machines out there working regularly. And one of the ways that we are planning to do that is to offer this as a service. So yes, we will sell some of these machines, but most of the time we will run them as a service, just like you would with any other service-based entity like Xerox copiers and run it on a much more green capitalism basis like John Solstrom writes about, where you're offering the opportunity to reduce the cost of electricity in your area by getting rid of the waste plastic, because we would be essentially offering these machines as a service to do both. It's super expensive to change human behavior, almost as expensive as inventing stuff. So even if you have something that's perfect and, and 
does all of the things you said, it takes a lot of time and money to get that in front of people, get them to change the way they're doing it, make a purchasing decision. Given that, what if you could take this technology and the plans for it and license it to the top two or three largest people make the diesel manufacturers and say, here, do this instead. Let's get involved in your supply chain. Let's take advantage of your manufacturing at scale and we'll make 10 cents for every dollar of things that you sell. Yeah, this is partnerships are going to make this work. Go ahead, Simon. No, no, absolutely. You know, what our, our initial goal for the next five years is to make ourselves. Um, so it might be with different manufacturing partners, uh, probably in Southeast Asia as well. But the goal for this company at the moment is to make 5,000 of these machines, deploy them, um, which we think is a realistic goal for a, for a company in terms of its, its growth. You know, you're looking at 45 machines in the first year and then 300 and then 900. So it's a, it's a relatively gentle curve to make 5,000 of these machines. But ultimately, you want these machines to be made not by the thousands. You want them to be made by the tens of thousands and then the hundreds of thousands. And the other thing is that they need support, just like the diesel generator market has an entire network of diesel mechanics that know how to service different kinds of generators. The same sort of infrastructure is going to be required for the service and maintenance of these types of machines. So yes, we absolutely envisage that this, you know, once we can prove that these machines work and that they're desirable and that they're, they operate, and then we are absolutely going to be looking for as many people that want to manufacture them and help service them and operate them as we can. Yeah, so, and absolutely, Lex. I would say that you're, you're spot on the money in terms of finding partnerships. And what's exciting is that just in the sort of public relations blitz that we've already undertaken over the last 12 months, we've had really exciting, you know, top-level industry interest, particularly from Southeast Asia, out of places like Singapore, who are interested in doing something about the plastic pollution problem. Because unlike air pollution, unlike other pollution problems that we have on earth that are also ubiquitous, plastic washes up on everyone's shores. Which cities do you see doing the most and where you can do business? And do you guys track that sort of thing? Like which, which oceans are the worst with plastic? And is that an indicator of where you guys might head next? Good question. I think when we first came out with the dung beetle, which was the precursor of Scarab Tech and sort of our genesis, we were approached by one of the biggest environmental groups in the world, which is IUCN, the International Union for Conservation Networks. They're based out of Switzerland, but they have a massive presence in the Pacific Ocean. And they, they got in touch with us because they saw a, a real big opening for this technology to reduce the plastic load on islands in the Pacific. So they partner with another group called Field Ready, and they, they looked at the Vanuatu archipelago. Because if you think about that big plastic pool in the Pacific Ocean called the Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch, um, that garbage patch storms blow that plastic up onto the beaches of, of all sorts of different islands, but in particularly the Vanuatu archipelago, the 88 islands there. They have tons and tons of plastic coming ashore with every storm event. When you look at the way in which plastic is distributed around the world, you know, waste plastic, a lot of that plastic, you know, came from Europe and it came from America. It was sent to Southeast Asia or China for processing. And then the people who processed it 
did it on the sides of rivers, and then every time there's a monsoon event, it gets washed down into the sea. Oh, so although it appears that the Southeast Asian countries are guilty of creating the Pacific garbage patch, almost all of that plastic started out in Europe or the United States. And when you look at the right kind of partnership that is going to make it possible to financially clean up that plastic, it is countries like Norway that are leading the way. They have in the Southwest Indian Ocean only, they have $40 million fund right now that is looking at solutions to waste plastic in the, in the Indian Ocean. They have $67 million fund looking at the reduction of waste plastic in the, the Central Pacific Ocean. And California is coming up with a fund to, comp to complement that right now. So when we look at these jurisdictions that are leading the way, Germany is one, Switzerland is another, we're looking at sort of the future of the waste economy through the eyes of those who can most afford it. So obviously we are going to find the biggest uptake for this type of initiative in the countries that have the most money and the, the cleanest countries, these countries that have spent a lot of money over, you know, in the 1970s, I just wanna regress here for a moment because this is important. In the 1970s, the, the lake in Zurich in Switzerland was so polluted that it was a fire hazard. It just in the 1970s, and now it's clean enough that you can drink it. These are countries that have wow. gone through their own pollution paradigm and they have turned around and become world leaders. And when we see the future of places like Cambodia, or we look at the future of places like Vietnam, both of which are huge contributors to the ocean plastic problem because they process the waste of other countries. We are looking at the future game changers of this economy. We've already seen just in the last 12 months, Cambodia say we will not take any more waste plastic to process. Vietnam has started to say the same thing. China said in 2018, we won't take any more of the world's plastic. So we're seeing global leadership from countries that are not Switzerland, not Norway, and not you know, places like California. These are, these are emerging environmentally conscious countries that want to see a change made. And I believe that we, we at Scarab Tech, you know, we're already in talks with people who run companies and businesses and even the Secretary of State of Cambodia to talk to them about implementing these solutions in their localities so that we can prevent the plastic from hitting the environment while at the same time you know, incentivizing the communities that are littered with what they cannot recycle yeah. to put it through machines and turn it into something that will provide them an income while at the same time cleaning up their environment. Well, with the exception of California, we didn't mention the U.S. too much, huh? We haven't, we're not doing too much on our end. It's really the other countries that are being the most innovative, would you say? I would say that certainly... America is lagging behind for two big reasons. We are one of the largest plastic producers in the world. We are building massive factories to create new plastic um, in the Ohio River Valley right now. And politically, there has been little um, leadership from the United States, even under the Obama administration, to reduce the amount of plastic that, human, that, that Americans consume and throw away every year. So we need to see better leadership in America, that's for sure. Not to mention the collapse of the recycling industry in America. Yeah. That too. 
which was essentially <laughs> just ship China. it to China. That was the plan. <laughs> it was basically a middleman shipping it to China mostly. I think the bar is pretty low for better leadership in America. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Any leadership just... in America would be good right now. <laughs> Being in America, you know, and just when I was there in August, you know, I was looking and, you know, people pay for their recycling. You know, they pay $20 or whatever it is a month for someone to come away and take away their recycling. Um, and the assumption on a consumer level is, oh, it's being recycled, which is just not true. <laughs> it's just no. not true. It's going in the landfill. And, yeah. So I'm just waiting. Like, you know, I'm amazed there haven't been lawsuits. It's like, why am I paying this 20 bucks a month to have my recycling done um, where it, there's no such thing? Yeah. So I think there there is definitely the scope in America for a for a, you know a real consumer backlash, especially around recycling, um, which might then also open the door to more of the for more of these technologies in America. But you know in America the problem is that th th this problem is not not visible. You know when I walk around California, and San Francisco or New York, you you do not see places littered with plastic. The beaches look nice, the rivers look clean, Colorado River looks great, and you. Come down here, go to Mozambique or go to, you know, a, a little river that runs through Johannesburg. You see it. It's everywhere. It, you're, you're literally stepping on it. It's clogging waterways. It piles up on the beaches after every storm. You know, you really, really see it. Um, and I think, you know, certainly now with countries just refusing to take, take this plastic anymore, it's going to become more and more visible uh, in, in, in the U.S. too. Before we get going, I want to just ask you guys real quick. I don't know if you covered this before, but how did you two meet and where did you guys connect and say together, let's join forces and solve this freaking plastic problem? Uh, uh, my wife is a chef and Jeff came for dinner um, to my wife's restaurant and they started talking and hit it off. And Jeff, you know, in his previous life as a, a journalist and a videographer for sort of National Geographic. And um, he was he was doing 360 degree virtual reality movies. You know, I read three, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 360 degree movies. And at the time, yeah, I've got a I've got an interest in projection mapping, uh, which I kind of do in my spare time. So Sian was like, you really should talk to this guy, Jeff, who came for dinner. So then we started speaking and he was, you know, we were talking about, you know, his 3D videos, his 360 degree videos. And I was going like, yeah, we could do like these three, you know, these projection mapped environments so that you didn't need goggles. You could just stand in a room and have the, the whole 3D experience without having a headset. And yeah, we totally hit it off, started going for beers. And then the one day he's like, you should come down to the workshop and see this thing that we're building. So I went down to the workshop and then looked at it and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then before you know it, we were, we were at, we were at Africa burn together and, you know, throwing plastic parties and yeah, we've been, we've been good friends ever since. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a ridiculous story. That's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> it was the wives and we got to thank the wives for that. Yeah, totally, we got to thank totally. the wives. We got to thank yeah. the wives. Yeah, actually Suyen was my yoga teacher and I was working on a project. Um, Suyen's my wife, by the way. Okay. Yeah, Suyen, Simon's yeah. wife is, uh, was my yoga teacher. And, and I, was, I was listening to her in yoga one day, and we were looking for a voiceover artist for a project that we were working on um, for the point of view, PBS point of view. We'd been shortlisted on a VR project. 
and invited to come out to San Francisco, we were really looking for the right voice to take the viewer through this VR project. And it was, I heard Simon's wife's voice and I thought, geez, she really should try out for this, this job that we've got. And she got it. And she became the voice of a, of a climate change uh, communication vehicle that we developed for PBS, actually. Oh, awesome. Yeah, my wife's Chinese, but she went to school in the UK, so she sounds like the queen. That's awesome. You guys we're, were fantastic. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Like, it's great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'd love to stay in touch. Yeah, and if there's ever a Burning Man again, can we get an invite? I don't know if Hell I'm cool yeah. enough to get invited. You should totally, yes. you should totally come. Anytime. You should totally, Anytime you should to totally do it. We have a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot awesome. of true blue points to get to Africa. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the Afri well, Africa, burn, Africa burn is super fun, man. It really is fun. Yeah, I, I, mean, it's not, I actually you know. had a meeting last week with uh, the folks who run Dr. Bronner's camp. You know, the David cool. Bronner is Dr. Bronner's great grandson. And they, they sent their main guy to talk to me about bringing in one of our machines and running a dung beetle project camp at Burning Man in Nevada next year. So we're in talks. We'll let you guys know. We'll definitely keep you informed. Cool. And I, all I have to say is, you know, Generation X for the win. I don't know about you, Anthony, but you look um, a little younger. Yeah, yeah. Even with the beard, I have gray in my beard. <laughs> I don't know who we can dedicate this to. Should we dedicate it to... Um... What have we gone through? Mothers, family, workers, bartenders. <laughs> um, kind of getting far afield here. I think meat meat packing plants would be... <laughs> Hopefully those guys are staying safe so you can continue roasting pork ribs and I can continue roasting lamb. <laughs> well, uh, we just talked about in the context episode how the meat packing plants are like the worst... <laughs> yeah that's true we're Bear gonna have uh we're not gonna have uh much meat left for a while i think no. it's gonna be scarce oh, no. it's gonna be rare uh -huh. pun intended <laughs> this is good this is a good closer okay <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's still who's still with us right now should check out the uh context episode on friday which is going to be with the ceo of ted ed and Ted Ed has another, or Ted has an amazing podcast, which we would also recommend, which this week was climate mindset. So they interview a lot of people about climate change who have had Ted talks. And it's always fascinating to listen to the way that they not only impact the story, but give context to it and go a little bit deeper. So I don't know, a little shout out for them. Anything uh, interesting surprise you about Ted? The guy or the organization? The guy, the, guy, the Ted. That's kind of a big deal that we talked to the Ted. He was a teacher and he taught in, I believe it was high school and Ted had a competition where people, where they would allow people to submit ideas for what they should do. So he submitted an idea for Ted Ed and they said, this is a great idea, but it's not the right time. And so they sat on it for two years and they called him back and then they said, now's the time. And that's how Ted Ed got started. Really? So he just sat on it for two years? Yeah, he submitted the idea to them, and they're like, now's not the exact right moment. Circle back in a little bit, and they did that. They're also doing some really cool stuff, specifically with climate change. Uh, they have a countdown clock, 
they have a whole set of lessons that are geared towards kids to help teach them about climate change and what's going on with it. <laughs> Before the clock runs out. Exactly. Hey, kids, <laughs> clock's ticking. Let's 100%. get moving. <laughs> up to them. Give us nightmares. Yeah. It's called right. countdown.tech.com. It's cool. All right. I'm so excited. Can't wait for context. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. All right, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Mm -hmm. all those good places. And tune in every week. We'll be here and we hope you will be too. Absolutely. Take care. Take care.